To this day, there is not a street that I can drive down in Compton that I don't remember a murder. Fire. A state of emergency for Los Angeles City. Probably because they're Korean and you know that, uh, that lady shot that little girl out there too. Outside the courthouse, angry demonstrators gathered to protest. To dawn curfew in the areas of Los Angeles hit by violence. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. Today's guest is Fred Reynolds. Fred's a good friend and a 30-year veteran of the Compton Police Department. His new book is called Black, White, and Gray All Over, A Black Man's Odyssey in Life and Law Enforcement. His odyssey has been an unusual one. He started as the son of sharecroppers in rural Virginia, was a gangbanger in Detroit, lived homeless for a while, and he ended his career as one of the most highly decorated law enforcement officers in California history. Today he's going to talk about the dramatic and tragic days on the front line of the Rodney King riots in 1992 Los Angeles. He's today's hero behind the headlines. Fred, if we could, we'd like to start with your background and how you became a police police officer. I was I was born in uh, in Rocky Mount, Virginia. It's a little mm-hmm. small town, probably about fifty miles from Roanoke. Roanoke's the biggest, the closest big city. Mm-hmm. And my parents moved to Detroit when I was just under three, because my father was a sharecropper, but he wanted um, to to give us a better life. So he moved sure. to Detroit, and he started working at uh, Ford Motor Company. With a lot of other people, big yeah. migration. There yeah. was a big uh, migration, particularly in the in the African American communities, and they went to Detroit primarily because of the automotive industry and all the accompanying industries. Mm-hmm. You, you make cars, you got metal, you got steel companies, yeah. you, you know, upholstery, tire companies. So there was a a, a huge um, influx of jobs uh, in Detroit mm-hmm. during that time that we moved there. And my father was an alcoholic. Um, he wasn't an abusive alcoholic. He was, he was a loving man. Mm-hmm. Um, he just liked to drink. And, uh, you know, I w- we had a lot of domestic strife, um, during my childhood. And, uh, uh you know, I, I sought the streets, yeah. you know, to get away. Yeah, um, sure. And I started hanging out with the wrong crowd. Um, I, w- I was, I was smart in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, you know, double promoted. I actually skipped a grade and I started high school when I was 12. But what was going on in in my home life, you know, it was difficult to deal with. So I started seeking, I guess you can say the comfort of family elsewhere. And and I went to the streets and I started hanging out with gang members. And can you tell us a little bit? I mean, you told me uh, it was a very different gang that you were in in the 60s, right? Yeah, in 70s. 70s. Okay. And that was... Well, I wasn't a, a member. I was okay. an associate. I okay. knew I knew a lot of the guys, and I hung out with them. Right. Right. So, I guess you could look at it like if a rival gang confronted us, yeah, they would consider me a part of the gang, even you got though I wasn't into a, action. Yeah, yeah, even though I wasn't a full fledged member. Yeah. Right. I was just an associate. Right. And the, and the way that I started associating with this particular gang is when I started having troubles at home and 
um, I guess you can say I saw love from the streets. One of our neighbors, he was an older kid and, you know, he was he was kind of like the neighborhood bully. But for some reason, he took to me and we started hanging out. And one particular day, he wanted me to come with him to the east side of the city. Now, during the 70s, the east side of Detroit was really bad. That was yeah. where the, the most ruthless gangs um, were from. So he had a cousin that was a member of the Earl Flynn gang. Mm-hmm. And the Earl Flynn gang was one of the largest and most ruthless gangs in the city. Earl the Flynn, like yeah. the movie star. Like the dashing, swashbuckling <laughs> movie star. Yeah, or the Earl Flynn. That was That's the name great. of the gang, right? Wow. And they dressed like him? or They didn't dress like him, but they... they it, it was different um, than kind it is that, today. That, that style. Yeah, right? they yeah, would wear attitude. like they yeah. would wear like suits and yeah. ties and hats, wow. you know, dress hats and dress shoes and wow. carry canes and you know okay. wear um, you know like the stylish, stylish like the twenty twenties yeah. and thirty gangsters used yeah. to dress yeah. right. So I went I went with um with this neighborhood kid to the east side to hang out with his cousin and we went to a party for the gang. Mm-hmm. And their rivals were called the the BKs or Black Killers, right? Mm-hmm. And they were just as ruthless, but not as large. So the, these guys, they were sneaking over to the house, and they were going to shoot up the house. And we just happened to, to see them across the street with rifles, and 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 they had a shootout. You know, that was my first experience into the gang life and wow. life. And um, you know, I liked it. Yeah, you know what exciting. I mean. It yeah. was exciting. Yeah. It, you know. Um, it, I felt like I belonged right. to something because, like I said during the time, you know, it was it was a lot of strife and turmoil in my in my um, home. Yeah. So I started hanging out with those guys, and um, you know, they st- were snatching purses and breaking into stores, and I started gambling, and I, I just started going down the wrong path. And then my neighbor, the, the neighborhood kid, he ended up going to prison, mm. and that know, must have been a yeah scary thing. I, yeah, I didn't yeah. I didn't want to go. Yeah. Um, to prison and and I didn't want to die and and what really opened my eyes, you know I had I had gotten pretty pretty good at at shooting dice because yeah. you know the neighborhood hustlers they would they would teach me and show me how to shoot dice and I would hang out with them yeah so I went to this to this after hour joint where they gambled and while we were in there shooting dice a couple of guys came in with guns and they robbed the place and mm. made everybody strip and was, I thought they were gonna kill us everybody in there and. Wow. How old are you at this point? Like, oh, shit. I think I was 17. Wow. Um, wow, that's scary stuff. Yeah. So, you know, that was, um, after that night, I, I took stock of myself. I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was causing my parents grief. I was going to jail over and over and, you know, almost getting shot. And I didn't want that. So I, I, I told myself, I got to get away because as long as I'm here, I'm not going to be able to to stop hanging around. I'm not yeah. gonna be able to remove myself from this. Yeah. So I joined the Marine Corps. Fred, like a lot of young men at the time, was trying to pull his life together. He had seen friends killed and others sent to jail. He knew that if he didn't change his ways, that was gonna be his future too. So he enlisted in the Marines and was deployed to Okinawa. After three years of military service, he met a young woman at a club in Los Angeles. They fell in love, married, and quickly had a daughter. But he struggled to find enough work to provide for his new family. He was basically homeless, sleeping in cars and all-night movie theaters. Then in 1985, seven years before the LA riots, an event at one of those jobs would inspire him 
to become a police officer. When I first got out of the Marine Corps, you know, I, I was putting in job applications everywhere. I never, never thought about being a cop though, you yeah. know, because to be frank, I, I didn't like yeah. cops, right? Because sure. of the things that I was doing and, you know, the things that I had seen growing up. Yeah. But and while they I, had a reputation for being pretty abusive. Oh Detroit, yeah, yeah. They yeah. had a reputation for being very abusive um, and, and they were racist. I mean, it does exist, you know, that was in about 84. Okay. 83 or 84. Okay. And um, I worked at Greyhound. So while I was working at Greyhound, a guy stole a, uh, a lady's luggage. Mm -hmm. And this was a lady, she had a bunch of kids, you know, little kids and, you know, I, I, I just reacted, you know. Yeah. I, I ran the ran the guy down. I caught him. I, you know, um, held him. They arrested him. I got her luggage back. And this lady and her kids, they were hugging me and crying. It was, you know, it just, it, you know, it was like a feeling that I never had. Yeah. So I said, well, you know, shit, maybe, maybe I can try being a cop. Uh -huh. So I did. Became a cop in the in the city of Compton because that's where my where my wife was from and that the area that I was most familiar with. Mm -hmm. Went on to become a cop there and worked there for about 14, 15 years. Now, at this point in the late 80s, Compton was rife with, with drugs. Oh uh, my God. Especially crack cocaine, correct? Yeah, yeah, the city was literally overrun with gangs. Yeah. Compton is a very small city, yeah, right? Yeah, what is it? It's like 10.1 square miles, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and population? Population, but you know, anywhere between 85,000 to 100,000, but generally, the um the city people would keep the the count under a hundred thousand because they were able to get certain grants from the government. Okay. So, you know, the city was like I said, no more than a hundred thousand. But even so, we were averaging eighty to ninety murders a year. Wow. Right. Um, so it was nonstop. It was unbelievable. Every yeah. every day there was at least two gunshot victims. Yeah. When I when I went to work when I got to work and yeah. I cleared briefing and drove out into the streets. We, we could count on at least two gunshot victims. Uh -huh. We could count on at least three murders a week. Wow. Okay? Wow. So, you know, the level of violence that we were seeing in Compton in the 80s and the 90s was, was you know, comparable to to, to war, yeah. to battle, you know? Yeah. Because when, when we, we, we always talk about the murders because the more murders, you know, they're, they're more glamorous, you know, in a perverse way. But we had just as many gunshot victims. Sure. So we averaged about 1,200 gunshot victims a year. Wow. Right? So, you know, you, you just saw devastation and yeah. destruction and misery yeah. every day. Wow. And then you have the other and crimes. And it's nonstop. And it's nonstop. And yeah. you have the accompanying crimes. The gang members were responsible for m the majority of the violent crime, for sure. Um, the property crimes, the burglaries, the thefts, the robberies, that came along with the, with the crack. Because once crack hit the scene, people went nuts yeah. and they needed to get money to yeah. pay for it. So yeah. they would break in your house, right. they would break in your cars and they right. would rob you. Before crack came along, um, they, you know, the drug dealers would sell marijuana, yeah. uh, powder cocaine, which wasn't readily available in, in the inner cities. Mm -hmm. It was more, more or less a, a drug for the affluent. Once crack came, everybody could get it. Yeah. So the gang members, before that, they were gang members and they would just gang bang and they would yeah. fight and they would protect each other's turf. And, you know, it was all this bravado and this machismo that yeah. was going on between the gang members. They didn't right. really get into selling the drugs. You yeah. know, you had the gang members and, and you had the dope dealers, yeah. right? And they yeah. had the pimps and all the accompanying uh, underworld uh, people. 
But once crack became so accessible and so easy to sell and it, became, and, and it was so easy to make money off of it, then the gang members started selling crack, mm. okay? Before mm-hmm. the drug dealers would employ the gang members as as bodyguards. Like protection. As protection, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But once crack came into yeah. the picture, they said, well, why am I protecting you? I can right. just sell it myself, right. right? Right, So the gang members got into selling crack, and and that's when the violence really took that's off. A game change. The, game. It was a game changer because yeah. they were able to make so much money, they were able to buy the sophisticated weapons, right? So yeah. they went from shooting at each other with 22s and you know, granddaddy's shotgun and hunting rifles, mm-hmm. they went to shooting at each other with high-powered semi-automatic handguns, yeah with AK-47s, with, you know, street sweeper shotguns. And so the the level of devastation that we started seeing was unbelievable. Um, We'd get gunshot victims uh, where we, when we got to the scene, it'd be seven, eight, ten people laying on the ground, you know, as a result of a drive-by shooting. Wow. So And this is all fights over turf. and And it was fights over turf, but it was also fights over drug sales. There were fights over perceived slights, you know, if you... You look at we we pull up next to each other at a stoplight, and you look at me, and I don't like the way you're looking at me, and yeah. you know shots are exchanged, and then that creates a whole new animosity, right? Because right? that just starts a whole cycle of violence. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. and I know there's there's a misnomer that Crips and Bloods are like you know uh, <laughs> fire and oil, whatever. Yeah. Um, that they just hate each other on site. And and yeah, they didn't get along, but it wasn't just Crips versus Bloods, yeah. right? It was Bloods versus Bloods. It was Crips versus Crips, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Depending on what neighborhood would get involved in something. Some of the, the most brutal and violent uh, battles that we had were between fellow Crip gangs. Yeah. You know what different I mean? Different factions. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Different factions of Crip gangs. Yeah, yeah. I remember you, you took me there once to Compton. Yes. And you showed me how... Like block by lo- by block was designated to different groups, yes. to different factions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. To this day, there there's there's not a street that I can drive down in Compton that I don't remember a murder. Wow. Not one street, wow. and every neighborhood is claimed as turf by a gang. Yeah. And what made these you know these gang rivalries so violent is that. Um, oftentimes you would have rival gang members living next door to each other across yeah. the street in the same block, Crazy. right? Crazy. So they're they're in contact all the time. In contact all the time. Yeah. 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 Could you talk a little bit about you know what what it was like when you first started and when the transition from the police as part of the community to becoming the the, the enemy? There's always been, I guess you could say, uh, an animosity between criminals and police officers sure, right natural yeah um but the there was it was kind of like rules yeah to the game mm-hmm. you know the the criminals did what they did and they tried to get away and the cops tried to catch them yeah. right yeah um if we if we caught you good if we didn't catch you you got away we'll get you next time right 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 now what happened was some cops they began began to become uh overzealous yeah right and they wouldn't wait for next time mm-hmm. to catch them. So they would start coloring outside of the lines. Okay. And they would um, plant dope mm-hmm. on people. Even though, you know, this you, you know this guy's a criminal. So you because you didn't get him the last time, this time you figure you'll just plant dope on him or plant a gun on him and take him off of the streets. Right. right? And that started creating animosity, see, because sure. most criminals, if you catch them fair and square, they understand the rules of the game. Right. Like there's a code. There's a code. 
they have a code and cops should have a code as well. Absolutely. Right? So when the cop, when cops started coloring outside of the line more and more, and, and there were all kinds of reasons why cops would do it. For example, during the crack era, if you arrested someone with a piece of crack, you would get a subpoena because they would file the case, right? right. That means that you got to go to court, mm-hmm. right? That means that you got overtime. So arresting people with crack became like um, bounty hunting because I'm not really trying to enforce the laws to get people off the streets to, to create a better quality of life for yeah. the community. I'm trying to arrest people so I can get a subpoena, so I can get overtime, so I can make money, right? So there was a money, personal money incentive. There was a personal money incentive. And when that started happening, if you came up dry during your shift, you would color outside of the lines. Yeah. You said, I need to get a subpoena. Right. So, and this kind of, I would imagine, heightened with the whole kind of war on drugs with the, oh yeah because yeah. because there was so much crack out there and yeah. you know once the president declared the war on drugs the district attorneys they were filing all of the cases right yeah, yeah. and you know truth be told uh ralph most of those people were they were sick yeah you know sure they were they were strung out on drugs much like someone is an alcoholic right right, right. it's the same as prohibition in it's a the way. same as prohibition yeah, right yeah so we start sentencing sick people to prison for four and five years because they had a you know a twenty dollar piece of crack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The scales of justice they weren't and balanced. They, were they really a danger to the community? No. Yeah. No, they weren't a danger to the community. They were yeah. going to break in your car, but I mean, does the <laughs> does that equal a five year sentence because yeah. you had a twenty dollar piece of cocaine? Yeah. So that's that's when everything started going downhill, okay. right? Um, when when the community the stopped trusting the cops yeah. because the cops wouldn't only do that to the criminals who knew the rule of the rules of the game they would do it to just sick people just you know right. a guy that works you know at, at, at a automotive place right. that happens to have a, a crack problem you plant dope on him you send him to prison you take him away from his family yeah. and now you got his kids they're lost yeah. right yeah. and now you have these children that don't Awful. have fathers in the homes yeah. right yeah. but it not only affected the the father, the male father figure, it also affected the mother female yeah, figure, right, right? right? Because what they would do, if they got strung out on crack, then they would prostitute themselves. And they, you know, a lot of times they were reckless yeah. with the sexual behavior. Um, they would get pregnant, mm-hmm. have kids. Yeah. You know, I knew one prostitute in Compton. She had 12 kids, right? Wow. And, and the county took every child from her and then they would put them in the system. So now we have this assembly line of fatherless, motherless children going into the into the welfare system and being raised in foster homes. Which is another horror in and of itself. Which is another horror in and of itself. Yeah. And all of it ultimately comes back to law enforcement because law enforcement, we're the ones that remove children from homes. We're the ones that remove parents from homes and send them to prison or send them to jail. And that's the memory that these children have of law enforcement. So the seeds of of distrust and hatred towards law enforcement, and I'm talking about in the inner city community, they were planted early. So as these kids grew, a lot of them were basically lost. You know, most of them probably didn't want to go the go down the paths that they chose. Of course not. Of course you know? not. Um, and, and so I was able to empathize with them because I almost went down yeah. that path. Right. right. Thankfully, I was able to extricate myself and 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 point my feet back in the right direction. But right. we we all aren't able to do that. Right. 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 So now you end up with with these you know rudderless 
kids just in the streets. And perfect fodder for gangs exactly. and drug dealers. Yeah. Exactly. And because they're going to look for a family somewhere else if they can't find a family. Right. You know, which, in their which homes. Which you, you had experienced yourself. Which I had experienced myself. Yeah. Right. So you had a lot of empathy for these people. I had a lot of empathy for them. Yeah. And, you know, um, the hatred of the cops, I, I think it all started there. And in the black community, you know, there, there had always been a hatred or if not outright hatred, a mistrust of the justice system. And it, it wasn't without merit because, you know, there was a lot of abuse that went on. Sure. And when I was growing up in Detroit, one of the biggest riots in history, the history of the United States happened in yeah. 1967. Yeah. Right. And it was because of years and years of police abuse and mistreatment. By 1991, tension between the police department and the black community in Los Angeles was building to a boil. On March 3rd, Rodney King was stopped by the police after a high-speed chase and nearly beaten to death with billy clubs. The brutal incident was captured on videotape. Two weeks later, a 15-year-old black girl named Latasha Harlins was shot in the head and killed by a female Korean grocery store owner who suspected her of stealing a $2 bottle of orange juice. The store owner was given probation and a $500 fine. The black community was outraged and crying out for justice. A year later, on April 29, 1992, a jury acquitted the four officers charged with using excessive force in the Rodney King beating. The tensions exploded. The community had had enough. And it was ugly, and yeah. there was no justification for it, even yeah. though they tried to. Yeah. Um, we, everyone knew they were lying, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but now people in the black community, they felt like there was a sense of vindication because yeah. it was kind of like, see, we told you. We told you this had been happening to us. Right. No one ever listened to us. Now we have irrefutable evidence that it's been happening and to us. And now you're right? seeing it. Yeah. And now you're seeing it. And yeah. you don't like it either. And yeah. the entire world can see. Uh, police brutality and racism on display. Um, so blood is boiling, tempers, you know, simmering. But we're still holding out because okay, now we're gonna get some justice because it's on video. And then they were found not guilty. And I can remember the day that the verdicts came in. I was working and I walked into into briefing and and everyone was gathered around the TV watching it. And they were announcing the verdicts: not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And I told my watch commander. I said, we're going to have problems. And he said, no, we're not. That happened in L.A. That's LAPD's problem. Within an hour, the city was on fire. What was the composition of the Compton Police Department at, at that time? It was, it, was, it was a predominantly black mm -hmm. um, department, um, probably 121, 125 Okay. Uh, so officers. even in a, even in a, a, a predominantly African-American police department, there wasn't an awareness that you know, uh-oh, we're, we're going to pay for this yeah. type of thing. Well, I mean, the watch commander at the time, you know, he was he was kind of uh, he's kind of arrogant. And, you know, like I said, he believed that since LAPD was responsible for yeah. it, it was going to be LAPD's problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I tried to tell him that, that this is not a one particular law enforcement agency's problem. This is a community problem. Right. So yep. that's that that was the the mentality yeah. um that went along with 
probably with that watch commander's decision mm-hmm. or you know his thought process yeah, that like it's they not screwed happen. up yeah, it's on Let them. them right yeah, point the finger at them right we, we didn't we weren't involved right and but I, to the community of course that doesn't mean anything i knew yeah. it i had seen it once before yeah and, you know in 1967 right yeah I, yeah, yeah. I, I was out there every day i knew how the people felt i knew how they felt about you know the cops and plus the 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 kids um you know from the crack era they were starting to to come up, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. So now we got these six, seven, eight-year-old kids, and, and they're pissed. Yeah, you know, um, they, some of them are addicted. Yeah. We're born addicted to crack, right? So they yeah. have no love for law enforcement or the justice system, right? So when when the city went up, I was working. I was working with a trainee, um, young white guy. Um, I called him Barney Rubble because he looked like Barney Rubble, and you know, my name was Fred. So, uh, <laughs> so we were working together, and and. We were driving around and the city just went nuts. There wow. were people everywhere. They yeah. were breaking in stores, yeah. setting cars on fire, shooting up in the air. Yeah, you know, and I was for the first time, I was like terrified yeah. out there in yeah. the streets, right? Yeah. Because you know, I, I had never seen anything like that before. For a week, people all over the country and all over the world watched in horror as the city of Los Angeles burned and National Guard troops occupied the city of Los Angeles. Now remember, this was before social media and wide-scale use of the internet, but the whole world was watching. This was the biggest outbreak of racial violence in the United States since the assassination of Martin Luther King. Wasn't there one particular incident that you drove up on of a, of a Hispanic guy who got trapped in a car at an intersection? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I... um. That happened um, three or four nights into oh, okay. You know, they it was on Rosecrans, mm-hmm. and this gang they had bottles of Old English, forty ounce bottles. Those are big bottles, yeah. And they weren't empty; they were full, mm-hmm. right? And the reason why they could do this is because everything was free, yeah. right? You can go in the store and get whatever you want, <laughs> right. right? So they had all these forty ounce bottles of of, of beer uh, lined up against the wall. And when we would drive down the streets, they would just throw the, the bottles of beer at our cars yeah. and break the windows and, yeah. you know, and they did it to one car and the guy stopped and they surrounded his car and they dragged him from the car. It's kind of like the Reginald Denny thing. Yeah, right, right. right. And they had dragged him from his car and, and and they had beaten him and he was he was hurt and he needed help, right? Yeah. So we had to form a, a line to go in and get this guy, to yeah. rescue this guy. And as we're driving in, I'm with, I'm with Barney Rubble. And, and there were about three or four cars behind us, and we drove in, and you know we were riding four deep at the time. This is this. These are all police officers. Yeah, these are all oh. police officers. I was the lead car, and then I had four or five police cars behind me, mm-hmm. and each police car had four officers in it. Yeah. And so and everyone had shotguns, so they would point the shotguns out of their windows as we're driving down the streets to go get this guy to keep you know them keep us from being shot at or bottles of beer being thrown at us. Yeah. So we just um, drove down. We grabbed the guy, threw him in our car, and we, we took him to uh, MLK Hospital uh-huh. um, to get him out of there. But that was that was just one of uh, of numerous incidents that were going on in that city. Yeah, I, I can recall driving around in the dark, and you could hear the sound of shotguns being racked, um, and you don't know where it's coming from. But yeah. the the sound of a shot, shotgun being racked is unmistakable. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's that. 
just increased the fear factor tenfold, yeah. right? Because of, God, am I, is someone going to shoot at me from the dark? Right. You know, where and, are they? Yeah. Where are they? Yeah. And, and this is this is these are the things that we're dealing with. And um, and and that first day, you I think you worked like yeah eighteen hours straight, something yeah, like that. Like uh, yeah, like nineteen twenty hours straight. And um, I remember when when I got off and I was driving home in my personal car. I had my gun on my lap because there were people everywhere, you know, and the cars were on fire in the streets. Cars were overturned. Buildings were on fire. People were running through the streets, carrying stuff, shooting in the air. And I remember leaving thinking, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. It was literally like hell. Yeah. And I lived in, in a nearby city called Long Beach, close mm -hmm. to the beach. Mm -hmm. When I got home, it was like nothing was going on. <laughs> It was like nothing. Seagulls were, yeah. you know, flying in the air, screaming. You know, uh, Crazy. women and yeah. bikinis rollerblading. Yeah, and I, it was like I had, you know, left hell and went to a to an entirely different world. Wow! Right? Wow! Um, and then when I went back to work, you just switched the scenarios. Right. It was like I was I was leaving, you know, utopia, going going back to hell. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, it was surreal. It's pretty crazy, surreal. Crazy. And that lasted for how many days? I think the riots lasted for five days. What Fred is going to talk about next is an incident that took place at the end of the riots that has never been reported before, that could have blown the riots wide open and led to riots across the country and tremendous racial violence. And the National Guard and the Marines, when they came in, they set up sandbags and M60 machine guns. <sighs> at the entrances to the city. Yeah. And we had to show our badges to come into the city to work. And yeah. we had to show our badges to leave when we were getting off work. Wow. Um, yeah, it was like a war zone. Yeah, yeah. And they were not trained for this this no. kind of The situation. National Guard, the military, they are not trained to deal with our citizens, yeah. okay? Yeah. And um, towards the end of the riot, when things pretty much calmed down, uh, we were staging at there was a there's a hotel it's called the crystal casino now but it, it was formerly the ramada hotel there mm -hmm. at the time on just off of the uh the 91 freeway in artesia yeah and it's a pretty pretty large st structure um and that's where we were staging at mm -hmm. and the marines were called in and they were staging there so for some reason they didn't want the marines just to sit around because they hadn't seen any action or you know so they decided to put Marines in every patrol car. Wow. So I had two Marines with me and um, a couple of, of the other uh, patrol units had Marines with them. And I mean, they had M16s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, These are not riot guns. Uh, yeah. They had M16s. Yeah. And we got a call of um, a man armed with a shotgun. So it was kind of quiet that night. So all the, all the units, I think I had a team of maybe six or seven patrol units. So there were, there were probably... Oh, maybe six Marines mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. So we get to the scene and it's an apartment complex. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a part, there are apartments on both sides of this huge you know, driveway, really yeah. wide driveway that goes, I think it ran North and South. Now the guy with the shotgun was on the second story and a lady on the first story when she saw us walking, she points up with her thumb, like, you know, he's up there. Yep. So we go up, you know, to contact this guy. We hear music coming from the apartment. 
And, you know, one of one of the guys that's with me, he knocks on the door and the, the landing in front of the door is very narrow. So mm-hmm. only two people could stand in front of the door and they were shoulder to shoulder. So these two cops were standing shoulder to shoulder while one knocks on the door and announces, you know, Compton police. And someone from inside fires a shotgun through yeah. the door. Wow. And hits both of the officers. And they go down and they start screaming. And, you know, I'm on the I'm on the stairway between the upper landing and the middle landing. And when they go down, I grab uh, one of the guys and pulls, pull him down to the middle landing. And another cop with me grabs the other guy and pull, pulls him down. Now, they're bleeding profusely. They had on bulletproof vests, thank God, or else they would have been killed because yeah. the, the brunt of the, the blast hit them both in their in their vests. Mm-hmm. But they also got hit in their arms. So that's right. where they were bleeding from. Yeah. So we're in the on the landing, on the middle landing. And, you know, we don't know whether this guy's going to come out the door, whether he's going to keep shooting or what. So I yell out that, you know, we got two officers shot and we need to get them to the hospital. Cover us. We're coming out. Now, cover two police officers means train your weapon on a potential target and fire if necessary. If they shoot. If they shoot or if they brandish a weapon in your direction. Right. right? Cover to the military means lay down a base of fire, whether someone's shooting or whether there's a present danger or not. So the Marines started shooting. At, and up into this apartment and you know we have something called contagious contagious fire so everyone started shooting so i go the guy that got and how that, many people are we talking oh my how God. many marines and it was at least maybe i want to say four to four marines fired i believe i think there were six there i know four fired for certain and there were a couple of deputy sheriffs who who had joined along the way saw us and say hey i want to i want to go too so they're there and then you got probably five or six police officers and everybody's ran and fire onto this one apartment. Wow. And, you know, we run underneath. With M- some of them with M16s. Some of them with M16s. And, and we run out with the two injured officers, throw them in the patrol cars and speed them off to the hospital. And it turns out that, I mean, they shot that apartment over 120 times. Wow. Okay. Wow. And it was an upstairs apartment. And thank God it was an upstairs apartment because the rounds were going up you know, in an upward angle, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If there would have been a, you know, a ground level apartment, probably everyone in the apartment would have been killed, mm-hmm. which would have been a tragedy of epic proportions because there were about three or four kids in the apartment. Wow. And I'm talking to kids. Wow. You know. And you guys didn't know that. And we didn't know. Wow. And we didn't know. Um, Those poor kids must have been terrorized oh my for God. the rest of their lives. Yes, yeah. yes. And I can remember um, when when the when the case went to trial, they, they brought... They had taken the door, the apartment door, and they used it as evidence, as evidence, and it was riddled with bullet holes. Wow! Um, wow! But that was and part- nobody was killed. The, no one the was killed. Police officers survived. Police officers survived. And everybody in the apartment. No one was even hit. Incredible! It's incredible, and you know. And it was the it was the father. Yeah. The the mother was there. Yes. And three kids. It, I think there were three kids and maybe a. Two teenagers, wow. I believe. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it, can you imagine if, the, if those people would have gotten killed? The yeah. riot would have never ended. That's right. You know? Yeah. So yeah, that was a there before the grace of God yeah. situation. Wow. And also a reason why you don't put military yeah. with police officers. Right. And and people, you know, I've, I've heard, had people ask me, well, you knew there were military personnel with you it's like well yeah i told them to stay in the car and plus when i'm 
and and I have my police officer hat on. I'm thinking like a cop. I'm talking. I'm sure. talking to my fellow police officers, sure. the guys that are with me. Sure, sure. Um, You've trained police officers. Yes. You haven't trained military. Right. People. And yes. I had been out. I was only in the military for three years. I knew what cover covering me meant to that. But when I said that, my thought was to get the police officers out and the safety. And I knew we had to go back under that window where the guy with the shotgun sure. was. Right. Sure. So, so if he sticks his head out. Yeah, we're coming out. Cover yep, us. Yep, right. Yep. Not. Lay down fire. Not lay down a base of cover fire. Yeah. Right? Wow. So, wow. So that uh, could have been a, a huge tragedy. Oh, it could have been. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even want to think about what could have happened. It was a miracle that no one was killed. 185 bullets had been discharged by the Marines and the police into that small apartment. After the incident, the shooter walked out with his girlfriend, four toddlers, and two teenagers. No one was injured or killed. You can only imagine what would have happened to Los Angeles had something happened to those people. It would have been horrible. So I would imagine after this, the, the tension between the, the police department and the community is at an all-time high. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, what was that like for you? Because you you were somebody who had a relationship with, with members of the community. And can you describe what that was like? You know, it was the people that you had relationships with, those relationships continued, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The difficulty arose in trying to create new relationships. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because people weren't as trusting as yeah. they were. Um, the gang members who used to show us, you know, respect, be it, you know, begrudging respect, it was still respect nonetheless. Yeah. They didn't show us any respect anymore. And, yeah. you know, they, they they didn't fear us, right? Because if I can just be honest, the, the Rodney King incident, it was not an anomaly, okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, usually at the end of pursuits like that, the cops would, would, would beat the criminals, the yeah. suspects. Yeah. It's it's not a surprise. Everyone knows that. Yeah. So if 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 people think that the Rodney King was just something that just happened to happen, you know, yeah. a, a once in a lifetime beating, it wasn't. Yeah. It was and those it, those are those are not to defend what happened, of course, but those are high pursuit chases if I if I remember. Yes. And and probably everybody's adrenaline is like sky high. Yes. And that's when you need the most disciplined cops, right? And, and, and because I, I, I would imagine if one guy breaks and starts wailing on somebody, it's probably really hard yes. to, to, to stop yourself from, yes, from, it is. from going. Right? It, it, it becomes contagious. That, that's why there's always, or there should always be a supervisor or sergeant mm -hmm. there because it's called post-pursuit discipline. Mm -hmm. And the sergeant is supposed to control everything that goes on. And the sergeant is supposed to get everybody's adrenaline and everyone's animosity under control. And yeah. you need a strong sergeant to tell people, knock it off. Right. 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 And, and take a walk. Right. At the Rodney yeah. King incident, there was a sergeant there. Mm. And the sergeant didn't exhibit enough control. Yeah. If the sergeant would have been strong, if the sergeant would have said, you know, knock it off, you handcuff him, put him in the car. None of that would have happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And look at all the pain that would have been that all the pain been. that would have been uh, you know avoided. Right. But you know all the, uh, to me that all that would have done would would have put off the inevitable because it was going to happen. It was, it was bound the pressure to was building. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know George Holiday, I call him the father of police 
reform because he videotaped that, right? Mm -hmm. He's the one that got that evidence on that little camera, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. well, it wasn't a little camera, it was a Sony eight millimeter camera, I believe. But he captured that for the world to see, mm -hmm. right? But now we're all George Holidays. That's right. Okay. Everybody's, Everybody's got, a phone. got a phone. Yeah. Right? Right. So that's why you're catching more and more of these incidents. Right. And that's why the police have to be more disciplined. That's why police have to be more disciplined. Than Absolutely. Ever. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So so if you could just describe briefly what it was like, the animosity that, that was coming from people. Oh yeah. The intensity, the, the you know, you could feel it in the air. It just yeah. changed, you yeah. know. Um when I first got hired as a police officer, you know, it was kind of like for the most part, a lot of people had respect for the cops. If, if a cop told them to do something, they did it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yes, sir. Yes, officer. Um, you know, and every now and then, every now and then you would run across somebody that just didn't want to, just didn't care, that just wanted to fight, right? Yeah. But after the Rodney King incident, no one respected the cops and yeah. everyone wanted to talk back and everyone wanted to fight and yeah. everyone wanted to challenge you and no one wanted to go to jail peacefully and yeah. no and they didn't care about you know shooting at you they didn't care about killing cops yeah and that was never more evident than when my friends were murdered after the smoke cleared after five days of rioting 63 people were killed 2383 were badly injured there was approximately $1 billion worth of damage to the city, including 1,000 buildings and approximately 2,000 Korean-run businesses destroyed. In addition to the deaths and the physical damage, the relationship between the police and the black community was in shambles. I was um I was one of the senior officers on um, on my shift in patrol. I was a training officer. And uh, this is it a year, a year later. Yeah, about about a year later after okay. the riots. Not mm -hmm. well, not even a year, probably seven months. Okay. Seven or eight months later. Um, so we have been experiencing a, a rise in, in gang related shootings, more so than than normal. So the watch commander, he put together a little strike force team of um four police units with two police officers in each unit. And I was the team leader, mm -hmm. right? And our mission was to go around and just go to all the hot spots where the gang members were gathering, go, you know, respond to all the calls where there's gunshot victims or assault victims mm -hmm. and, you know, see what we could do to um, make arrests or identify people involved. So we had made an arrest that night and, you know, it was getting, it started, it was, it was getting late and the, and the calls for service, you know, they slowed and it got really quiet. And, you know, I was dating a, a, a girl that I, I was really, really fond of. And I decided, you know, well, I'm going to get off early, go see her, mm -hmm. you know, because um, it's, it's quiet now, yeah, right? Yeah. So I told everybody, I said, hey, let's let's knock it off. Let's go on to the station. And um, two of the units, um, Kevin Burrell and James McDonald were one unit, and the other unit was Gary Davis and um, Mark Metcalf, right? So they wanted to go eat. So I said, okay, you, I'll see you guys back at the station. So I went to the station. I had a trainee, and I was about to get ready to get off work. I was about to change. And the other unit was a guy by the name of Lindell Johnson, and he had a trainee. And they had they were taking care of the arrest that we made. So mm -hmm. they were in the in the station um, booking evidence and you know doing the uh, arrest report. So while I'm about to get um, undressed and change clothes to go see this this lady, I was seeing uh, we got a call over the station intercom. Yet you know we have 
uh, reports of an officer down, right? And I had been a cop at that time by about seven, for about seven years, and I had never heard an officer down call, right? Yeah. That's like the worst call that you can get when you're a cop because right. that, you know, we're not supposed to be down. And so, you're a small, it's a small group of people. And it's a small you group know of everybody. people. I know everybody. We know, we, you know, we, we hang out with each other. You yeah. know, we play dominoes at each other's houses when we're off duty. So, you know, I froze and I slammed my locker shut and, you know, run up the stairs and, and then we get another call. And the call got updated. Now we're getting, you know, the dispatcher puts out, uh, now we have two officers down and she gives the location. So I start, you know, uh, driving to the, to the location with Johnson and his partner, they're following me. And, you know, I, for some reason, I just knew it was Burrell and McDonald. I don't know how I knew, but I knew it was them. Kevin was like, he was one of the most beloved Kevin cops. Burrell. Kevin Burrell was yeah. one of the most beloved cops on that department. Everybody loved him. The community loved him. The firefighters loved him. People at the hospitals loved him because he was he was about six six and he was you know close to three hundred pounds. So he was a huge man. He was yeah. a, and he was a gentle giant. Jimmy McDonald was a reserve and he always smiled. Everybody liked him too. He and was white. He and was a white. Burrell guy. was was and black. Burrell was black. And you know McDonald was about five eleven. He was average, average mm-hmm. height, mm-hmm. but he was a really personable guy, and everyone liked him. And he had specifically requested to ride with Burrell that night because he had just McDonald had just been hired by a police department up north, close mm-hmm. to where he, where his parents lived. So that was his second night, second to last night working in the city of Compton, and he wanted to ride with Kevin. And I knew all this, yeah. all this is in my mind. And as I'm driving towards that scene and they're telling me it's two officers down, I knew that it was them for those reasons, because yeah. that's how it always fucking happens. You yeah. know what I mean? It yeah, always yeah. happens to the best of us, right? right? So um, I started, I st- we, we got to the scene and I saw their police car and, and um, McDonald was lying in the, in the street at the front of their police car. And he, you know, he was dead. The bullet hole in his face, mm. and McDonald. I'm, I'm sorry, Kevin Burrell was lying over on the other side of the car in the gutter, and um, he had been shot in the head, in the chin. Is you know there was a lot of uh, blood and brain matter, and you know I knew he was dead, and yeah. you know I thought God, I was just talking to these guys, right? Yeah, I told them to eat and come to the station. Yeah, right. But um, turns out that. After they had eaten, they were on the way back to the station, and the dispatcher said there was a call of shots fired in an area. So they decided to to go over there before they came to the station to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And the area where the shots fired call came out um, was on, on Wilmington, by about 131st, 132nd, somewhere over there. And on the west side of Wilmington is, is a gang called the Front Hood Crips, and on the east side of Wilmington is a gang called the Anzac Great uh, Crips. And those two gangs didn't get along. Mm-hmm. So my guys knowing, and I'm talking about uh, Davis and Metcalf in one car and Burrell and McDonald in the other one, knowing the history and the rivalries, they figure, okay, well, they're probably shooting at each other. Yeah. You guys check front hood, we'll check Anzac Grape. Yeah. Right? And for the first time that night, that team split up. Yeah. That team split up. Yeah. So... At some point, Burrell and McDonald saw a red truck and they decided to stop it, right? While Davis and Metcalf are looking for shots fired in, in the other rival gang neighborhood. Do you know why they, they stopped the truck? 
I don't know. No yeah. one knows. Yeah. No one knows. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe they thought it was out of place. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, the guy that they stopped, he was the devil. Um, he was the devil. He, you know, he was feared. He was a, a, a gang, a blood gang member. He was feared in his um, neighborhood. And when they did a traffic stop on him, on his vehicle, on Rosecrans by Dwight, um, you know, the way cops do traffic stops is, you know, they'll get out and they'll shine a the spotlight. If it's at night, they'll yeah. shine a spotlight on the interior of the vehicle. The overhead lights are, are on. And what we generally try to, try to do is we'll put a spotlight in the rear view mirror, on mm -hmm. the side view mirror, mm -hmm. driver's side view mirror, and in the rear view mirror. And that's so that we obstruct the, the vision mm -hmm. of the occupants of the vehicle as we're walking up, mm -hmm. right? And we usually approach... Um, the driver officer will approach on the driver's side of the vehicle and the passenger officer, which is called the book man, mm -hmm. right? Or book person, I guess you is more politically correct. They approach on the passenger side mm -hmm. of the vehicle that stopped and they're watching everyone inside the car for movement. Once everything seems to be okay, um, the book, book person will just watch while the driver officer contacts the, the occupants of the vehicle. Right. So there was only one one person in the car, this blood gang member. Kevin gets him out of the car, and he put he has him put his hands on the roof of the car by the driver's door, and Kevin's standing behind him, and he's searching him. Yeah. Right? And we know this because there was a witness that drove by that saw this, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. um, so Kevin obviously felt that the guy was unarmed, and he walks him back to the hood of the patrol car or to the front of the patrol car because the procedure was at the time for police officers was to have the person put their hands on the hood of the car mm -hmm. and you detain them while the other, while you go back and you search the interior of the car for weapons, right. drugs, contraband. And then the book person is supposed to keep eyes on the guy while his hands are on the car while the driver officer searches. Well, at some point while they're walking this blood gang member back to the front of the patrol car, a struggle happens and he pulls out a gun, a gun that Kevin missed when he searched him by the door. Mm -hmm. And um, he he got off. He got he fired nine times. Wow. Um, he hit Kevin four times, and and he hit James four times. They killed him, and then he he got back in his truck, and he and he just took drove him. off. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And the police officers hadn't drawn their guns at this nope, point. No, because right? because they thought that um, he was unarmed. And the book person usually has his gun, depending on the circumstances, has his gun in hand. But once Kevin had searched him and determined that he wasn't, you know, falsely determined that he wasn't armed, Jimmy hosted his weapon. Wow. And now you got both cops with their with their guns hosted. And that's probably I wasn't there, but I can speculate. That's probably when the when Blood Gang member decided to make his move once they yeah. both reholstered their guns. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he pulled his out and then they they started, you know, wrestling over the gun and, you know, he was able to kill them both. Wow. Wow. That must have been like one of the worst nights of your life, I would imagine. And I, I, I it got worse, right? Yeah, you know, since we're a small agency, um, I had to handle the scene. So I had to locate the evidence. I had to book their bloody clothes and their bloody badges into evidence. I had the right to report. Um, to this day, I don't know how I did it. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember doing it. I remember, you know, um, the chief told me to go home because I had been there so long. 
And, you know, I didn't want to be alone. So I said, well, I'll just go see, you know, the woman that I was trying to get off early to go see. And when I got there, you know, she had another guy in her yeah. apartment, right? Wow. So wow. Um, that's pretty devastating. Yeah. And um, I just went home and I just, you know, started drinking. I drank two days. Did you have to inform the families of, of, of these these officers? No, I, I didn't have to do that. that mm -hmm. The um, Burrell's uh, parents actually came to the hospital because it was so tragic on so many levels because, yeah. you know, Burrell lived about two blocks from the station. Oh, wow. And we used to go over his parents' house and eat, you mm -hmm. know, um, and hang out and, you know, play dominoes and, uh, and listen to our radios for calls, right? And Kevin had brought his mother a scanner, okay, oh. so she could listen while he was at work. And Kevin was one of those really active guys. He was always on the radio. He loved to sing, and sometimes he would sing on the radio. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. he was just that kind of guy, yeah, right? Yeah, um, like full of life. He's just full of life. And, you know, his mother and father came to the hospital, and the chief of police and a commander were there. And, you know, she said she knew it was Kevin because yeah. all everything that was going on, she didn't hear his voice. And she said he was always on the radio. So for two cops to have been shot and him not to say anything on yeah. the radio, she said she knew it was him. Wow. Um, so that's they went to the hospital and, you know, she found out that he was dead. And, uh, yeah. Wow. That's how that went. Wow, wow, wow. So that must have had a profound effect on the whole department. Um, yeah. It was yeah. it was bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was bad. Wow. They created a huge task force to try to find this guy um, or to try to identify him. And that's because at first we didn't know who the hell it was. So they created this huge task force to, to solve the, the case. And, you know, we, we did a segment on um, America's Most Wanted when mm -hmm. it was a really popular show. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and despite how the other police agencies felt about the Compton Police Department, the animosity, the disdain, the dis, you know, the mistrust mm -hmm. that they have for us. Mm -hmm. They were there for us when mm -hmm. that happened. Mm -hmm. um, the sheriff's department sent a team of investigators over. LAPD sent a team of investigators over. The smaller agencies offered to do whatever we needed to do mm -hmm. um, to have done to help keep us help us keep the city safe. And they were able to um, they were able to identify him because the guy who killed Burrell and McDonald after it was over he went back to the Nickerson Gardens, which is where his gang hung out. And he still had the gun and he gave the gun to, a, to an associate and said, hey man, I just smoked them cops, you know, get rid of the gun. Wow. And so this guy, instead of throwing it in the ocean like he probably should have, yeah, he sold it. Huh. Okay, he sold it. And then when we got this, this huge reward, he said, oh shit, you know, I'm a scorpion on a frog's back. Yeah. I'll sting him in the middle of the river. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. He goes and he contacts the cops and he says, um, I know who did it. I can get you the gun. Wow. And that's how we broke the case. No kidding. And we sent him yeah. uh, and two undercover officers back to the person that he sold the gun to. He bought it back at twice the price. Price. They test fired it and it was the murder weapon. Yeah. And that's how we that's how we solved the case. Wow. 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 And that guy's in jail. Yeah, he 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 um he got the death penalty because he had killed another guy. Uh-huh. 
um, in the Nickerson Gardens about a year before it was LAPD's case, but uh -huh. they couldn't put it together. Yeah. But once this happened with um, with, with Kevin and Jimmy, um, they were able to file all three cases. Yeah. So he actually got convicted of three murders. Wow. And he was sentenced um, to death. And he's he's still in San Quentin right now, but he'll never be put to death because the death penalty is all but yeah. quote unquote dead yeah. in uh in California. So it'll never happen. But yeah. hopefully he'll never get out. Wow. So what a story. What a story. So uh so you went full circle, Fred, from uh from the gangs to policing a community with, that supported you yes. to the community turning on you, becoming law enforcement and, and seeing you know, your brother's good friends go down. Yes. Uh, this must have had a big effect on you personally. Uh, oh, my God. You know, for a while I lost my way. You know, I didn't want to be a cop. Um, you know, I drank a lot. I was surly. So it just took time to heal? Yeah, you know, it, it, it took time to heal. Um, you know, I, I, I realized that they would want me to be the best cop that I could be. And I met a really nice woman mm -hmm. um even though i wasn't even trying to because yeah. i didn't want to you know devote myself to anyone again i didn't want to be hurt yeah again i read i met a really nice woman uh -huh. um and she helped me point my feet in the right direction and i married her and 25 years later we're still married that's wonderful um but she was my rock yeah you know fantastic uh, fred as, as a black man in, in the midst of a racially charged conflict how did that feel? I mean, how were your how were you able to resolve it within yourself, right? It was difficult. Yeah. Um it, it and it's always difficult uh for a black uh man or woman that's a police officer working in a in a predominantly black area. Mm -hmm. Um because some of some of the the citizens view you as a as a traitor. So th there's always that thing that you have to try and reconcile you know, you tell yourself, I'm just out here doing my job. You know, I'm I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to provide that level of policing that a white police officer provides, you know, a white community. I'm doing I'm doing nothing different. I wanna be here because if I'm not here, then you're only policed by white police officers. Yeah, right. Or no police officers. Or no police officers. But still there's that level of mistrust and, you know, being thought of as a as a race traitor and a lot of times if if i had a white partner people in the community they would defer to the white hmm. to my partner um you know rather than 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 the black officer and wow. and that was that was something that was quite common yeah. right especially um if it's a citizen that doesn't know you if a citizen knew you then yeah. they would they would talk to you because right. but most of the time they would defer to the white officer, almost as if you know the black officer didn't even um, merit wow. you know, my time, right? Wow. Because you know they called us Uncle Tom's, yeah. Um, especially after the the Rodney King uh, incident, yeah. And but I, the way that I was able to to be successful at my job is I treated everybody the way I wanted to be treated. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. if it was a woman someone's mom i treated her the way i would treat my mother mm -hmm, right mm -hmm, i treated sure. i treated people with respect yeah. until they showed me that they didn't deserve my respect right 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 and i knew that as long as i treated people the way that i wanted to be treated i would be okay yeah right because right. even if i was a criminal and I, I if i was doing something wrong if i was hurting someone and a cop pulled up i would expect the cop 
to do what he had to do to make me stop. Right. You understand of what course, I'm saying? Of course. So yep. I, I approached every situation like that. Yep. And, you know, I was I was very successful at my job because in 32 years I never had to shoot anyone. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm most proud of that fact. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know I sure. know a lot of cops. You know, yeah, I've gotten all these gunfights and shootouts, and I'm proud of that I didn't yeah. have to do it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I was able to still be as successful as I was. Yeah, um, you well, know, that's the way it should be, right? Yeah, you yeah. should you should look at it like a an honest politician, and I right. know that's an, an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, but you should try to look at it like that because, you know. Politicians, leaders of countries only go to war, should only go to war when there's no other alternative. Right. 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 If you look at your job like that as a police officer, the only time I'm going to shoot somebody is if there's no other alternative. Yeah. Then you'll have a successful career. Right. I'm not saying that it never has to happen. Right. 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 No. It just never had to happen to me. Depends on circumstances. Depends on circumstances. Sure. Sure. But I think. you know, going back to what you just said, it goes back to that idea of community. I think, you know, like if you feel this is my community, I'm part of this community. I'm not just some outside gunslinger Absolutely. who's been brought in to, to, to keep people in, in line. Right? Absolutely. I'm part of this. And this is like a vital living thing. Right. And the health of it, I play a part in maintaining that. And, uh, and if I abuse my authority it's gonna it's gonna mess up the community you know you know what ralph that's a very good point and the and unfortunately we talked about this before like we're at a point in our society where you know the division is so deep and the suspicion on both sides is is so is so strong that uh you know there's a lot to overcome before you can feel like okay we're all human beings we might have different likes and dis- dislikes and whatever, but who cares? We're all part of this community. Right. We all have to respect one another. Right. And we all have to set the boundaries of what we're going to tolerate in our community and what we're not going to tolerate, you right. know, and how we're going to deal with people who deal drugs or commit crime. Like, do we want to send them to prison? Do we want to do it a different way? But it's got to be something that we all agree upon. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Fred, uh, I know you were a couple of years ago doing private security for the Avant family. And uh, are you continuing to do that kind of work or have you moved on? I've moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Well, you're an I, author now, Fred. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I've, I've, um, You've got some more books in you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an author now, but I'm, I think there's a good message in Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Uh, I try to end it, you know, uh, on a positive note that uh, on a, you know, unity, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, I try to let everyone know that no matter what we've dealt with, no matter what this country has been, no matter what this country is, we all live here and we're all brethren and we yep. have to love each other absolutely absolutely you know, and i try to yep. end it like that so god bless man that's great great message and it's a great book by the way well fred it's been an absolute pleasure it's always a pleasure talking to you uh and uh all the best thank you thank you ralph fred's job as a policeman was to keep the peace or at least the violence to a minimum 
And when the shooting broke out, it was his job to identify the victims, investigate the crimes, and arrest the perpetrators. In his book, Fred talks about the tremendous toll that the constant violence that he faced took on him, on his marriage, on his psyche, black, white, and gray all over. He describes the heartache, the divorces, the infidelities, and then finally, he found peace and a happy marriage and a happy family. But this problem doesn't go away. And the distrust of the police and the violence in black communities continues. Fred isn't a political commentator. Instead, he's someone who lived and worked on both sides of the issue. He was a black gangbanger, and he served 32 years as a black police officer. So he has compassion for people on both sides. If we're ever going to solve these issues, we need to hear more from people like him. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. And make sure to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines. (laughs) 